This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. This symposium on public attitudes to refugees was organised by the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law in conjunction with the Migration Law Program at the Australian National University and the Centre for Refugee Research at the University of New South Wales. The symposium brought together academics, legal centres and social justice organisations to review existing literature on public attitudes to refugees, to learn lessons from other contentious policy areas and to consider new research opportunities relating to public discourse and attitudes about refugees. The advisory committee for the centre and it's a real pleasure uh, to see the, uh, uh, the terrific ideas that have been developed this morning and I look forward to uh, the same and leading to a, uh, a plan for action this afternoon. Uh, <clears throat> this morning has been directed towards listening to some of the issues and obstacles facing specifically the uh, advocacy groups for refugees. Uh, this session is aimed at learning from others uh, what is necessary to succeed um, in uh, with, and starting with uh, attitudes that are, are socially unpopular. Uh, in a way, this is the toughest session, not because of uh, uh, the stories that we're going to listen to, but because it's after lunch. So uh, it's a challenge usually to stay awake. And I've asked our speakers to speak loudly and quickly um, so that uh, you'll be forced to pay uh, some attention. Um, and uh, we'll try and stick uh, to the one and a half hours that we've devoted to each. So let me uh, now introduce uh, our first speaker. Excuse me while I refer to my notes. Andrew Bunn, uh, who is the Director of Research at uh, Essential Media Communication. He's got very extensive uh, experience in uh, research techniques and he's going to be talking about the role of research in Your Rights to Work campaign, which was very successfully conducted in uh, 2007 uh, at the election. Um, he will also share some recent research that Essential Media has conducted on asylum seeker policy. I've also asked Andrew, if it's possible, to give us a, a, an idea of how uh, organisationally the campaign worked uh, what we could learn from that and some idea approximately, if we could, of what it, these things cost. I know that's in the extrinsic section of values, but I think it will be ultimately important to, uh, to the groups here um, if we're going to do anything similar. So thank you. Andrew. Do you want to get there? Or... I might stand up here if I can, because I'd like to, like to see the screen. Um, and can I, and I can see it there. Okay. Good. Um, thanks, Andrew, and thanks very much for inviting me. Um, which button? Right. Just the left and right. Okay. All right. As Andrew said, I want to talk about the uh, our experience with the uh, what we call the Your Rights at Work campaign, which is the anti-work choices campaign run. Um, not just in 2007, but um, 2005 it started, right through to 2007, and that's probably a pretty interesting point that these sort of campaigns aren't short. Uh, about us, just briefly, uh, about our organisation, we are a research and communications organisation. 
Uh, we conduct research, we develop strategy, and we uh, develop uh, execution of that strategy. And that's what happened throughout the uh, Work Choices campaign. However, we set ourselves, I guess, apart from some of the similar organisations in that research forms the basis of what we do. Uh, we don't do any campaigns. We don't take any, on any major clients without doing any research for them. Uh, and the reason we do research is basically to inform and develop the campaigns that we run. Uh, we need to understand the issues before we start and how people feel about them, before we start talking to them about them, before we start trying to influence how they feel. Um, so we do research to find out who can be influenced and how we can influence them. And uh, to stop wasting money so that we're not talking to the wrong people and we're not telling them the wrong things. Basically, we're testing out the campaign before we actually run it. The Your Right to Work campaign, just to remind you of the sort of timelines and what was involved, um, the work choices laws were first mooted or announced in early 2005, probably in January, I think, and weren't implemented until 2006. And this is uh, just a short summary of what they involved, and they were quite comprehensive. Uh, they talked about a national industrial relations system, particularly talked about removing conditions from awards. Uh, it was going to be brought down to five basic conditions, I believe. Um, changing the way the minimum wage was set, removing protection from unfair dismissal, moving workers to contracts um, and, and particular sorts of contracts that hadn't existed before. As a background, the industrial relations just wasn't an election issue, just wasn't, you know, high up the scale in terms of importance in, in the public's mind. Um, we conduct a regular sort of survey of, you know, what issues are important and it ranked ninth out of ten issues. Um, management of the economy was, was third most important and sort of education and health are always up there. Uh, and there was little difference between, surprisingly, there was little difference between the parties um, on, you know, who was the best to manage the industrial relations laws for Australia. Um, partly because it was such a low-profile issue. Now, we initially were asked to conduct some research very early in 2005, um, uh, just after the laws were announced, well before they were implemented. Um, and that actually, the impetus basically came through one particular union, which was the AMWU. Um, and they funded us to conduct a couple of polls, one amongst their members and another public poll a little bit later, and what we found was really low awareness of the issue. Uh, no one much had heard about it, no one knew much about it, what it entailed. Um, and without knowing that, um, no one was too concerned. Um, in fact, as we see on this, nearly half of them had a reasonably positive view of it or thought it to be fairly benign. We then were funded to conduct some further research and we went to, uh, we went to focus groups uh, and conducted a number with workers, um, mainly around the sort of middle income, lower middle income. We wanted to find out how they identified, how they thought of themselves, um, how they described their lives, what, what concerned them and reactions to the laws and what elements of the laws they would most oppose um, so that we could target our campaign around those sorts of issues. And we also want to test the campaign, the, the uh, 
the view of the public around unions. You know, could the unions, and you know, even, and this was actually quite important to the unions actually deciding to commit to run a public campaign. Um, just as an aside, the initial response of the trade union leadership to the issue of, uh, of work choices was, we'll negotiate this, we'll go and see the Prime Minister, we'll go and see the government, we'll talk about it and we'll negotiate a compromise. They thought they could advocate, um, which was um, rather forlorn sort of thought. The main findings of the research we initially conducted and um, conducted further down the track, as I say, we conducted over the, we continued over a couple of years, um, was while the government was seen as being a successful economic manager and that the economy was, at, at the time, was certainly considered to be doing quite well, people didn't think they'd benefit. They didn't think they would, they were personally benefiting from the, from the, um, from the economy. Um, so what, what that means is that we should be focusing on the personal effects, the family, the, the impact of these new laws on the family. We knew that the campaign wasn't going to be won in the pages of the Financial Review. It wasn't, we shouldn't be taking up, you know, uh, make, making it a debate, I guess, about economic issues, but making it a campaign around personal impacts. We also found low awareness. Um, but a very high concern. When it was explained to people what was happening, when it was explained to people what the laws were and how they might impact on people, then they became extremely concerned. So uh, the, one of the first tasks of what we did in the campaign was to inform people about it. We identified key concerns around the legislation, which were around loss of conditions, around reduction in incomes, and the threat of unfair dismissal. And th this was all focused on contracts that people may well be forced to sign. So a lot of our messaging was focused around the contracts and the unfair dismissal issue. There was also a concern for people who were, more who were seen as being more vulnerable within, uh, within the workforce. And that was part-time workers, that was women, that was low people on low incomes, young people. And there was also a concern about the, how that impacts on the family and family life. So once again, we targeted the campaign to families. In fact, people got sick, I think, of the phrase working families. And uh, we sort of apologised for that, um, that that sort of became part of um, you know, Australian politics. And uh, it, it was really meant as part of the campaign, but politicians have continued to use it, I'm afraid. We also found at the time a reasonably positive perception of unions. That is, as, as, as an organisation that should be concerned and fighting on this sort of issue. Um, in fact, people really expected the unions to stand up and fight on this issue. That was, this, this is the role of unions, to stand up for workers. So it really meant that the unions could successfully promote a campaign. Um, we also found that, unsurprisingly perhaps, that uh, the government at the time was considered to be quite close to business, and that gives us a reason. That gives the rationale for why they're introducing the, uh, these laws. Uh, it gives, a, I guess, a reason for why or says to people that this has been in, brought in to benefit the employers. It hasn't been brought in to benefit 
the workers. And we also looked at the, sort of the theme of, of fairness versus rights, because that was a, you know, how are we going to frame this sort of debate? Is it going to be framed as a fairness debate, or is it going to be framed as one about rights? And fairness basically was to, came across too subjective. Um, rights are far more concrete. Uh, fairness is sort of a matter of, a, a matter of opinion, and, and what might be fair for you might not be fair for someone else. So that's why it was based on rights, because rights are quite concrete. Rights can be actually taken away. In terms of the extent of the research we did, um, I think over the two, three, two and a half years, I guess, from when we began, um, we did seven national polls, basically to monitor how things were progressing, monitor opinions, um, how people were, were responding to the messages and the, and the advertising around the issue, um, and also to test our own messaging. Um, and we probably, in developing advertising, because this was very much based around, um, although it had a number of components, it was based around uh, uh, a series of television advertisements that set the tone uh, and uh, underlined the whole campaign. And the, the, uh, the campaign had other components. There was a, uh, a marginal seat component where the unions targeted 25 marginal seats in Australia. There was a union component, a union member component, where there was... Uh, where the issue was um, promoted or campaigned within within unions themselves, um, but we looked after mainly looked after the advertising campaign, and uh, and to develop the, those um, advertisements and messaging, we probably ran about fifty focus groups um, over the over the two and a half years. If Andrew is interested in the cost of all that, we're probably looking at um, several hundred thousand dollars just for the research. The campaign itself, I'm not too sure on, but I've got a feeling that the ACTU spent about $20 million on it, um, the, um, which was far, far less than the government spent promoting the, uh, the laws. So the things we got from research were basically to understand what people's concerns were about the issue, um, to help us develop effective messaging around it, um, our slogan, because our slogan was your rights at work worth fighting for. Uh, two, three word slogans. Um, or four, isn't it? But um, that, was the, that was the focus on rights and the focus on the fact that we're going to have to fight for them. Uh, we also tracked through our research, tracked, tracked the opinions as I say, and also importantly, we were actually testing things the government might say. We were testing their messages and we, would, we knew how the public were responding to their messages and to their advertising so that we could counter that. Uh, because as the campaign went on, we had to change uh, or nuance, I suppose, the messages we're putting out. As I say, I'm going to show you, um, for your interest, just a couple of the ads that we did show. The first one we did was... Um, I'll just go back to that one there. Um, this lady on the left sort of was the, uh, was the, the key to the campaign. Um, and this was done before the laws came in. So it was obviously using actors just to demonstrate, you know, what the impact of the laws might be on families um, and uh, 
and, and people in, I guess, who are a bit more vulnerable. Well, let's just see if this goes. Here we go. Try that. <laughs> Hello. Oh, hi, Mr White. The federal government is scrapping unfair dismissal laws for 3.6 million workers. Uh, no, sorry, I can't. I'm rostered on for tomorrow night's shift. So if you think that you and your family are safe... But who's going to look after my kids? Think again. You can't sack me. Really. So, as you see, that one was around family. It was around fears, around... Uh... Uh, losing control, I guess, of your your roster and your working conditions and uh, unfair dismissal. Picking up, and all of these are picking up on things that we developed or, or discovered, if you like, through the research. After the laws came in, we moved on to a whole series of ads on real people uh, to, to demonstrate what had actually happened, what were the consequences of these laws and, and uh, some real situations. So... I'll just try this one. I'm afraid this one's a little bit fuzzy, um, but you'll get the idea. Under my AWA, if the restaurant wasn't busy, I didn't get paid. The company want us on individual contracts, but we want the union to represent us. If a customer left without paying, it came out of my wages. We've been told, if we don't like the contract, don't show up for work. Just because you're young doesn't mean they should be able to do this. The laws have taken away our right to choose. And this is the second one along the same themes. And all the people in this ad were in other ads as well. And this is sort of a little compilation of them. After 34 years of service, I was sacked and then offered my job back with a 30% pay cut. I was sacked by text message. They didn't give me a reason. I refused to sign a contract that cut my pay. The day after the legislation came in, my job was terminated. No redundancy. I worked there for 25 years and it meant nothing. Two days after these new laws came in, I was sacked and I was told that there's nothing that I could do about it. Towards the election, we developed, those, as I say, those real people, real stories ads ran for most of the, most of the period from the time the laws were introduced. Um, towards the election, we moved on to a couple of other aspects to, which, which, once again, were guided by the research that we conducted. One of them was about why the government was actually introducing these laws. Uh, and as we found... The government was seen to be closer to business. The laws were being introduced, were being certainly perceived as being introduced to benefit business rather than um, uh, employees, and this works on that uh, idea. Another record profit. What's the financial outlook? With the new IR laws, we can cut labour costs by 10%. What's the legal position? Using individual contracts. We can scrap penalty rates, overtime pay, shift allowances, even public holiday rates. But is that fair? It's beside the point. It's the law and we look after our shareholders first. OK, next item. Executive bonuses. Authorised Greg Combay, ACTU Melbourne. And we also ran one that reflected, you know, concerns about young people. Um, and, so, and this was... 
about you know what is the what is work going to be like for the next generation. So we'll have a look at that. Should be down at the bottom. You know, our generation fought for things like regular working hours, penalty rates, and redundancy pay. Until this year, I got overtime pay and had a say on the roster. But John Howard's IR laws changed all that. I get $11 an hour, no penalty rates, no public holiday rates, and no protection from unfair dismissal. These are meant to be prosperous times. So why is it my grandson has less rights at work than I had? Some of the outcomes of that, as, as we know, there's an election and that was the ultimate outcome. However, um, uh, as I say, industrial relations was never a particularly important issue until now, uh, until the 2007 election. And I think what the publicity did and what our advertising did combined with the government's advertising, and we knew actually that the more the government advertised about promoting it, the more people got worried about it, which was um, good for us. But as, as an issue, it, the importance of industrial relations rose, and I think it was, it was about the third, on our sort of ranking, it was about the third most important issue come the election. Uh, there was a really strong relationship between voting intention and the importance, at least the importance of industrial relations um, in voting. And we also, across all our surveys, were able to uh, uh, estimate uh, what happened to vote switches and the people who actually switched their vote from the coalition in 2005 to Labor in 2007, 80% um, of them were opposed to the laws. So there's a very strong relationship between the uh, switching votes and feelings about the industrial relations laws. That's um, most of what I want to talk about with on, on that front. We've got a few minutes, Andrew, you want? Okay. One of the other thing, uh, which, things which I thought might be of interest to you, um, and you know, happy to take questions on the uh, Work Choices campaign um, later on, but we run a weekly poll, uh, public poll, and we've addressed uh, the issue of asylum seekers uh, on a fairly regular basis over the last five, six, seven years. Um, and, and if anyone's interested too, um, if you go to our website, you can search all those findings. Um, so there's quite a bit there. Um, and, and one of the objectives, I mean, the poll we run is, is probably we're trying to make it a little bit different from some of the other public polls around. Uh, we're not so much interested in you know, measuring how people feel about Bill Shorten or uh, who they're going to vote for. But we really, what we're actually trying to do with our poll is to actually understand, not just measure public opinion, but try and understand it and understand why people feel the way they do and have certain opinions. Um, uh, this is a, this is sort of a standard question we've run for some years since back since 2010 on um, the government's approach to asylum seekers and whether they're too tough or too soft on it, and you see quite a turnaround from the Labor government to the Liberal government. However, we got to now the last time we measured it was in uh, January, and we still got nearly a quarter of people think the government's being too soft on asylum seekers. However, a little bit more interestingly is that um, this was done, yeah, earlier this year. Um, how should asylum... We're asking people how should asylum seekers be treated? And as you see there, 
somewhat encouragingly, 49% think that asylum seekers should be allowed to stay in Australia if they're found to be genuine refugees. Um, but when you look, when you when you then ask, are they? Forty-three percent say they're not. Most of them are not, and only thirty-two percent say most of them are. So there's 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 one barrier. We did ask some time ago um, what were the features of you know that a refugee policy actually should have. Um, what were the important components of you know, a refugee policy and processing system? Um, and stopping the boats. So this is... I'm not sure whether Tony Abbott was saying stop the boats at that stage. I don't think he was. Uh, but stopping the boats was considered the most important thing. Keeping costs down um, and protecting... But protecting human rights comes up fairly high. Um, down below, making sure they're not returned to their countries they fled or having approval from the United Nations, people did not think it was particularly, particularly important. Um, but that, e even that small bit of information there um, it does give us some direction and guidance on you know, what sort of messages, what sort of things we can say that will have a bit more impact. We've also just recently been working with um, our a group who are working on asylum seeker policies. Um, and we wanted to test out information about, uh, you know, what sort of information might persuade people, uh, what sort of information might influence people. So we ran a couple of questions where we asked half the sample one question, um, and this one is um, the government policies to send asylum seekers arriving by boat to detention centres on Nauru and Manus. Do you agree with the policy? And in the second version, we gave them some information um, that is contrary to the UN Refugee Convention, it costs Australian taxpayers two billion a year, and there have been reports of mistreatment. Um, and we, we we asked just just before I just go through the result of that, we we actually tested a number of these sorts of questions, and this was the first one that actually shifted opinion. Um, it went from 57% agreeing with the government government's current policy to 42. Uh, that was the only one. However, there's caveat to that one because um, the information we gave people was about refugee UN conventions, cost and mistreatment. So we actually took out... So we tried again and we took out the reference to cost and it barely shifted. Only just a, only a little. So whether that whether that's a help or not, uh, I personally think it is. But uh, that the, these sort of cost issues are around, and I guess the messaging around that would be: um, why are we doing these things? Why are we spending so much money to do to do this when there's better ways to do it? I'll finish there. Thank you, terrific. Uh, I'd now like to ask Rodney Cram uh, AM uh, uh, to speak. Uh, Rodney is a uh, prominent campaigner for Marriage Equality. He's the director of the Australian Marriage Equality and he's recently published a new book, 
uh, called uh, This Day Forward, Marriage Equality in Australia. Uh, Rodney fronted the campaign to decriminalise homosexuality in Tasmania. Many accolades uh, and honours for uh, that terrific effort. He'll be talking today about the experience of campaigning for marriage equality uh, and reflecting on some of the personal stories and the relationship to human rights and international law. Thank you, Rodney. Thanks very, thanks very much for that uh, introduction and thanks very much for asking me along to speak today. Can everyone hear? Are you sure? Um, I'll, speak, I'll speak briefly about the marriage equality campaign and I'll speak about it in fairly black and white terms uh, because I want to get across some key points. Um, in Australia, it's a campaign that's been going on now for over a decade. Uh, there's an awful lot of history there. But I want to condense it into some key messages about public opinion and uh, community action. And I'll start off talking about um, the framing and messaging in the marriage equality campaign in Australia. I guess the first point is that we no longer talk about rights. The right to marry or the right to be equal or whatever it is for a number of reasons. As you'd probably be aware, in Australia, married and de facto partners have similar um, spousal entitlements. So it can be difficult to make the case that marriage gives people more rights in Australia. It certainly allows people the opportunity to prove their relationship status if they're challenged, which too many same-sex partners still are. But in terms of substantive legal rights... There isn't much difference. And in international law, there hasn't until very recently been much of a body that we can draw on to say this is about human rights. The UN Human Rights Committee has actually found that uh, denying same-sex couples the right to marry doesn't necessarily breach the international covenant. That was a decision in 2006. A bad decision in my view, but... A decision nonetheless. And only with the US Supreme Court decision a couple of weeks ago can we say that that's beginning to change. And of course, as you'd all be aware too, Australian political culture is very much based... If there's any philosophical... If there's any dominant philosophical strain in our political culture, it's utilitarianism. We don't have a strong culture of civil rights as uh, some other countries do, like the United States. Uh, and that's certainly obvious to me when I watch the debate on um, asylum seekers in this country uh, and see discussion about our international obligations 
discussion about the human rights of people seeking asylum, discussion about the legal rights of people seeking asylum, fall flat again and again. And I say these things as someone who believes absolutely passionately and has my whole life in human rights and someone who was involved in, as, as, as you were saying, in the decriminalisation campaign in Tasmania that involved a successful appeal to the UN Human Rights Committee that those old laws violated the right to privacy and the right to uh, uh, equality before the law. But when we're talking about marriage and allowing same-sex couples to enter that institution, rights don't really cut it. People don't associate marriage with rights. People associate marriage with love, commitment, fidelity, joy, sacrifice. They associate marriage with values that are very important to many people, those values. And so increasingly when we talk about marriage equality, we talk about those values. Because, like I said, that's what people understand marriage to be. Positive aspirational values. We also talk... I mean, we don't cease to talk about discrimination. We talk about discrimination and we talk about fairness. Talk about exclusion, social exclusion. But again, in an aspirational way, about people, the value of including people within core social institutions, the value of treating everyone fairly, positive aspirational messages. And it was fascinating to hear me listen to Andrew talk about the uh, Your Rights at Work campaign and how the research that you did showed the opposite, that people needed to... Um, that, that, that rights were something that uh, people could grasp compared to the concept of fairness. The research that we've done shows the opposite in the marriage equality campaign. Fairness is fine. People understand that. They understand how it applies to, yeah, you know, they've been together 10 years, why shouldn't they be? That's only fair that they have the right to get married like everyone else or they are able to get married. But if you start talking about, you know, they have the human right to get married or they, you know... People find that a little bit difficult. And the main way we've found to communicate these positive and aspirational values are, of course, personal stories. The personal stories of partners who have been together a long time, personal stories of their family members, of their adult children if they have children. If there's one thing that has propelled the marriage equality a campaign in Australia and in every other country, I think. It's been that telling of personal stories. In, in 2004, when John Howard amended the Marriage Act to make it explicit that same-sex couples couldn't marry in Australia, support for the reform was 38%. Now it's 72%. The first time in our parliament that legislation was introduced or voted on to um, 
remove that ban, there were six votes in favour. Now we count 103 members of federal parliament who, if there is a vote, soon hopefully, will vote for it. At least 103. Hopefully more. That's a tremendous turnaround in a decade in public opinion and opinion in parliament, which is falling behind, which has fallen behind that, but is still moving in the same direction. And I attribute that almost entirely to the telling of those personal stories. In social settings, in family settings, in workplaces, and most of all to MPs. And I'll talk a minute, in a minute about how we get those personal stories through to MPs. But first of all, I'm just going to read you two short stories which, to me, encapsulate the values that I'm talking about or the messaging that I'm talking about. And they're both from the book that was mentioned before that I've just published. Um, I'm not usually, I don't usually do the self-promotion thing, but I'm quite proud of it. So. <laughs> As you know, I'm from Tasmania, and uh, in Tasmania, a very popular sport still is wood chopping. Because we have, hopefully we'll continue to have lots of trees. Um, and uh, it's a... Uh, it's still a highly competitive sport and uh, it's not surprising that Tasmania has the world champion axeman, a fellow by the name of David Foster. He has won, I understand, 1,000 world, uh, world championships in wood chopping. And he is a very... Um, if, there's one, if there's one key blue-collar icon in Tasmania, it is him. More than Ricky Ponting or David Boone, David Foster. And he was quite antagonistic to marriage equality for many years until the day that his daughter came out to him and then brought her partner and their daughter back to live in Tasmania from Sydney. This is what, this is what David says about that. She, that is his daughter, Sally, is a nurse. She has a beautiful partner and a child. And if they wish to get married, I can't see why they shouldn't be able to get married. Marriage is about being in love. <coughs> it's about family. They are in love and they are a family just like any other. I've been lucky enough to walk down the aisle with my eldest daughter and I'd like to do the same with Sally. That story was in every Tasmanian newspaper. And that story was pivotal in us moving forward almost and almost achieving a state law in Tasmania to allow same-sex couples to marry in 2012, defeated by, unfortunately, by just one vote in, the, in our upper house. But it was because of that that we got that far. But if there's one story in this book that is my favourite... It's the one I'll read to you now because it speaks to everything I've been saying. 
This is, um, this is written by a fellow who's still alive in his 80s. He lives in Sydney. Frederick, his name is. Frederick Weisinger. I have been in a happy relationship for 38 years. My partner and I were both migrants arriving in Australia in the 50s. We were a controversial pair. He was German and I was Jewish, who not so long before spent my childhood and adolescence in a concentration camp. Yet we overcame a great obstacle because we have found love was stronger than hate. We built our lives together. We brought family to Australia, who in turn prospered and had families of their own. We lived in the same house we brought and had a wonderful relationship with our neighbours and people at large. Our foundation was solid. We did not shake any heterosexual foundations. We would have loved to be married and be part of society instead of outsiders. I think that in a more enlightened world, there should be more understanding and tolerance for persons of the same sex to be allowed to marry and live equal to heterosexuals. Like I said, uh, that's my favourite because it speaks... to the positive values that I've mentioned already, to love, to commitment, to family, to inclusion and fairness. And even more than that, it speaks to the importance of marriage at its best, marriage at its best, as an institution that overcomes barriers and brings people together. It speaks about the value of love. Those are the stories that have made a difference in Australia and have brought us to where we are now. But of course, a key task for us over the last 10 years has been to allow those stories to be told in ways that will make a difference. And one of our key activities, particularly in the last few years, has been to go to those places where we know there are MPs who are still undecided about the reform, bring together people who are supporters from across that community, skill them to tell their personal stories, to find what their stories are and to tell those stories, and then skill them to communicate those to their fellow community members, to the media and to their local MPs. That would be, I'd say, probably 70% of what we do, even though you may not even know about that because it happens at a, at a, at a, at a low level. Just in the last three weeks, I've been to... Um, um, Goulburn and Nowra and Rockhampton and Launceston um, and I'm about, about to go to Berwick in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne and there's on MacArthur, the western suburbs here, just in the last month doing this with my colleagues in Australian Marriage Equality. I came here from a session in the New South Wales Parliament of people who have been involved in those sessions, at least in New South Wales, getting together to go to the next level about, well, how do we communicate our stories, how do we communicate our support to local MPs? Like a, like a seminar for people who have been involved in these previous workshops. 
when we go to those electorates, it's not only that that we do. There are plenty of other ways that we attempt to get these messages across. We encourage local governments to come out and support in marriage equality. There's been about 50 of them now in the last couple of years that have passed marriage equality motions right across Australia, mostly in New South Wales, Victoria, Tasmania. We encourage local businesses to publish ads in the newspaper. There's been about a dozen of them just in the last month. Again, not here, because we don't need them here, but in the kinds of places I've mentioned already. The latest, I think, was in Bunbury at the, uh, on um, yesterday, yesterday or Wednesday. People have barbecues for marriage equality. They have fundra local fundraisers for marriage equality. Where there's an MP running a survey, they will get out and they will actually door knock. And this is happening right now in the electorate of Bowman, which is the Redlands in southwestern Brisbane, I think it is. And it's happening at the moment in the electorate of Lyons in Tasmania. People are door knocking to encourage people to fill out the survey that their local MP has sent them, asking whether they support marriage equality. And we asked the people that were in contact with it at this grassroots level to find those people in their electorate who are key influencers of their MP and encourage them to identify their personal story about why this reform matters and to tell that to their MP. So local accountants and car salesmen and um, <coughs> real estate agents and clergy and whoever it might be that are in the friendship networks, the social networks or political networks of the local MP. All of this gradually adds up. And so when you see in the newspaper that there's been a spate of MPs who've come out in the western suburbs of Sydney or in Gippsland or um, in northern Queensland or wherever it might be, that's because of what has already occurred in those electorates through identification of key influences and telling of personal stories and business ads or whatever it might be. Barbecues. I've been to so many marriage equality barbecues. And they always have little rainbow wedding cakes. <laughs> and it's really cute the first ten times. <laughs> um, I've had so much rainbow wedding cake. Now, obviously there are, there are differences. When we're talking about... Um, Equality for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender and intersex people and respect and dignity for people seeking asylum. Obviously there are differences. One thing that has really propelled the marriage equality debate is that almost in every family now in a country like Australia or almost in every workplace there will be someone who is gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender and intersex. Because we are more open. Um, about who we are than, than ever. And just as in the case of David Foster and his openly lesbian daughter, that obviously has a dramatic impact. And that's not the case for people seeking asylum. Tony Abbott does not have a Sudanese sister.
Maybe it'll make a difference if he did, hopefully. <laughs> um, and same-sex marriage doesn't cost anything. It doesn't cost the government anything. Um, it, uh, you can't manufacture threats about people losing their jobs or, or congested traffic in the western suburbs or whatever nonsense comes up about how we shouldn't have people arriving on boats. But that's not to say that we haven't also been up, it, up against it in the marriage equality debate, and obviously we have. Up against some, some churches that are dead against it and are highly resourced uh, with the kind of money that we can never muster. Our advantage is personal stories told in a way that emphasises aspirational, positive, shared values. And I'm sorry if it sounds naive, but I think that that is, seems to me the way forward when it comes to asylum seekers as well. As someone who stands outside the asylum seeker debate, the images I get thrown at me by the Australian media are very negative, obviously. They're full of desperation at best and fear at worst. And a lot of attacks on government. There's too little emphasis, in my mind, there's too little emphasis on the values that matter to me. Positive values about what Australia is at its best as a nation. About what those people on those boats mean can contribute to our, what they can contribute to our society. And I know that these are messages that many people have tried to get out in the past. And I know some of you here will have tried really hard to do that. But you need to keep on trying. Because it's those positive values that will make a difference. So in summary, there has been tremendous progress on marriage equality in Australia in the last 10 years. It's because of a stress of the emphasis, like I said, on positive, aspirational, shared values, on what marriage means to us all and what fairness means and what being Australian means. And I'm not sure how long it's going to take to achieve this reform. It could happen as early as next month with bills going forward, in cross-party bill going forward in Parliament, it might take longer. But I know for certain that when it does occur, it'll be those values that get us there. Thank you.